Welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order and then we rank them from best to worst. I'm Ben. And I'm Sarah. How are you doing today, Sarah? Feeling pretty good. Um, For Christmas, your parents gave us this old turntable that belonged to your grandparents and we finally got everything organized in the living room to have space for it. Yeah, and to hook it up to the stereo and get it working. Yeah, so now begins collecting records in addition to the collections of existing media that we already have. Yeah, the DVD collection and the comic book collection and the video game collection and the... Book collection. Yeah. A lot of collections. Yeah. (laughs) How are you? I'm doing pretty good. I I have a weird mix of emotions towards today's episode Mm. because part of me is very excited and grateful, I guess. And the other part of me is, like, mildly annoyed. Okay, so what are we watching today? Because it's not what we said we were watching at the end of the last episode. Yeah, so this is another case, like with Unheimlich Geschichten, where we sort of put out a call saying, hey, we're trying to find a copy of this movie that we can watch with subtitles, but we can't find one. And then it got to the point where we should have been watching that movie and we still hadn't found a working copy. So we just sort of went ahead and watched the next movie on the list, which in our case was last week's episode, The Ghoul, uh, with Boris Karloff. Just like in the case of Enheimlich-Kigeschichten, pretty much a few days after deciding we weren't going to watch the movie because we couldn't find a copy, boom, a copy shows up. (laughs) Um, And in fact, in this case, like literally the next week, like a week later than we really needed it. So we're sort of jumping back in time again for a little continuity insert episode with La Llorona, uh, which I'm actually saying that wrong. Oh. Because a double L in Spanish is a Y, like in tortilla. Oh, so it's Yavona. Correct. Apparently double L can also sound like a soft J, but it like whether it sounds like Ya Llorona or La Llorona depends on like what like, region of Spanish-speaking people you're in. Whoa. Uh, it's Y if you're in Mexico, so I'm going with Y, because it's a Mexican movie. For sure. And that's the film we're watching, because we found a copy on YouTube with, quote, subtitles, unquote, because similar to our Inheimlich Geschichten situation, it's a copy on YouTube that has Spanish closed captioning that can be then Google translated to English. So it's not real English subtitles. It's going to be, once again, into the breach of auto-translated Google Translate to English experience. I mean, it was an experience with Unheimlicher Geschichten when we did it. We'll see if the algorithms are any better at Spanish than German. Either way, it's better than having no translation at all and not knowing what's going on. For sure. So we're going to take a look at this film and do the best we can to follow along with the auto-translation. And to the person who put it up, thank you. Yeah, absolutely. It's also fairly good quality for the video quality. It's in HD. Oh, when nice. like a lot of the other copies of this movie floating around online are sort of, of like taped onto VHS off the TV kind of level quality. Mm. Um, so I think it's going to work out fairly well for us. As we've kind of alluded to in past episodes, this film's like the first Mexican horror movie. And Mexican horror is like still to this day a pretty big 
deal in terms of like a um, national subgenre of horror. Oh, really? Well, like uh, Guillermo del Toro, for example, you know, got his start as a big name in Mexican horror films, right? Sure. This particular Mexican horror film, La Llorona, is based on a fairly well-known, popular, old Mexican, Latin American legend or folklore, as I understand, Sarah? Yeah. This myth of La Llorona, which translates to the weeping woman, Mm -hmm. is a myth that's throughout Latin America. Uh, Now, Latin America is a region which has a lot of different influences, not even to mention the indigenous influence of like the Aztecs and Mayan as well. But this kind of area, to give people an idea, if you have no clue as to what geography looks like, there is Mexico all the way down to Brazil, Colombia, Cuba, Guatemala, Puerto Rico, Haiti. And it's kind of comprised of about 26 countries where Spanish and Portuguese were the predominant languages when colonization happened. It's Latin America because... Well, there's the literal definition of the Latin-derived Romance language Mm -hmm. dominating in those areas, so Spanish and Portuguese, but then that also allows for, like, Creole languages where, you know, you have that French influence, like, we talked a lot about that in the episode on White Zombie set in Haiti. Mm -hmm. As far as a shared cultural, I guess, identity for Latin America, there's no reason to say Latin America for cultural... Thing, it because like the definition comes from the languages yeah, spoken. It's a linguistic definition based on like what they're speaking. I suppose the cultural binding element would be the same as the linguistic one, just in the sense of the shared colonialist history of coming from Portugal or Spain. Exactly. Like for example, someone who's from Mexico would be Latin American, whereas someone from Spain would not be. Right. But they'd both be Hispanic. Because Hispanic basically means uh, Spanish-speaking. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, but, like, Brazil... Is not Hispanic, because they speak Portuguese. Exactly. Geography and linguistics here on Scream Scene. Yeah. <laughs> so despite that, like, weird hodgepodge of, like, cultural, linguistic identity in Latin America, this myth of La Llorona, the crying woman, is kind of throughout. Yeah. The myth itself, you can't really find one specific origin. People have tried and traced it to, like, everywhere from Gaelic myth to German myth. So, yeah, right? I feel like it's its own thing, even if it has similarities with other myths. Mm-hmm. Um, but suffice it to say that it's not like it, it has a specific beginning in the way that, like, you can kind of trace vampires to texts. Yeah, or specific incidents like, uh, you know, your small town with, like, a weird plague happening or whatever. Exactly. Mm-hmm. According to the myth of La Girona, there's a beautiful woman named Maria whose husband leaves her for a younger woman. Okay. In revenge on the husband, Maria drowns her children and then drowns herself. Bad revenge. <laughs> well, drowns... They're children because that's how, you know, lineage works. Yeah. And then it, to kind of extrapolate from the legend, she drowns herself because she's upset at what she's done. Yeah, I mean, it it makes a kind of sense. I'm just saying, revenge advice to our listeners, if someone's being a dick to you, drown them. (laughs) 
So Maria is not allowed to enter the afterlife uh-huh. until she finds her own children. Um, they say, you know, you're not allowed in, not because you've done this terrible thing, but because you are responsible for your children's, I don't want to say salvation, but your, your children coming into the afterlife. Mm-hmm. So um, she is trapped here on Earth to search for her children in around lakes and rivers, weeping that she can't find them because they're gone. Okay. Specifically in Mexico, this aspect of searching for her children is emphasized uh, to keep kids from wandering out at night because it's said that she will kidnap wandering children to drown them and take the place of her own children. Right. Mm-hmm. Kind of a, one of the similarities with the Gaelic myth of the banshee. If you hear her wails, you are marked for death. Only instead of a where a banshee kind of screams, La Llorona is... Weeping and crying, I miss you, oh my children. Okay. Now what's kind of interesting is that, you know, this basic core myth of vengeful woman wailing for her lost children is kind of extrapolated to real life incidences or real life human examples. Okay. Kind of the most common one is La Malenche, um, who is a Nawa indigenous woman who was a translator for Cortez. One the, of the conquistador. Yeah, the conquistador who colonized <laughs> a lot of Latin America. Mm-hmm. The villain, your mileage may vary. You know, one of those historical figures who's like, could pretty fairly be like filed under villainous, but definitely like, you know, like a Columbus or something. He's also like a big nationalized cultural figure. So like, Villainous, but your mileage may vary on how villainous you regard him. (laughs) Yeah, I feel like people are kind of starting to realize how terrible Columbus was. I I have no idea how people feel about Cortez. Well, like, imagine Columbus, but he's actually a soldier and has an army and is, you know, on purpose swooping through and killing everyone in military conquest rather than just kind of doing it accidentally through being a dick. I see. So it's kind of like you have that horrible genocide, but then there's also that way of looking at him where he's like a a glorious military, you know, leader or whatever. Sure, sure. So this woman, La Malenche, she bore Cortez a child and then he abandoned her. Mm. There's no evidence to support the idea of La Malenche killing her children, but she did work to... Uh, I guess, subvert and undermine Spanish rule uh, in vengeance for all of this. Hmm. So with tying her story to the story of La Llorona, you see this tying of not only of a woman spurned, but fighting against colonialism. Sure. Um, with that Spanish conquest of the New World and destruction of specifically indigenous peoples, kind of tied in with La Llorona's loss of children. Right, so there's sort of a an overlap between like fighting, fighting in a um, like getting a, revenge on oppressors for putting them in you in the situation that you are in. Yeah, and sort of there's the the macro sense of doing that in a political kind of context, and the micro sense of doing that in like a family kind of context, um, and with like the conflation of you know the the husband and father with the political oppressor. I guess, like, overall, it's a pretty, like, fight the patriarchy kind of uh, kind of myth. Definitely. Like, that's the other thing where people are tracing the tale of La Llorona to Gaelic or German origins. 
The idea of a spurned woman or a woman who is non-compliant being characterized as this monstrous, vengeful thing mm-hmm. is not unique in patriarchy. Yeah, it's 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 not a it's going to pop up in multiple places sort of independently. It doesn't have to be sourced from anywhere. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Um, as far as the reality of these tales, or like what might be a possible explanation for some of this, is mountain lions live and have lived across Latin America, and their mating call can sound a lot like a woman's scream. Huh. Yes. Canada has them, uh, we kind of call them cougars, mm. though, but they will like stalk your prey, especially around dusk. Nothing specifically tying them to water, of course, but they are a very deadly predator. And what was kind of neat to find is that the story of La Llorona really persists in areas where mountain lions are still very active. Okay. Um, This kind of like looking at Mexico in particular, but I would presume across Latin America as well. Interesting. So that gives you kind of an overview of the La Llorona myth. Like, I'm sure that there have been other figures in history that maybe the myth has kind of been tied to, but kind of the biggest one that I found was La Malenche. Mm-hmm. When this film was released in 1933, it came at a significant time for the Mexican film industry. Mm. The 1930s and 40s were sort of known as the golden age of Mexican cinema. And part of the reasons for this is that Mexican filmmakers finally had a kind of political stability to the country that they could produce some of these works. And it's neither here nor there, really, for me to go into the political history of Mexico leading up to 1930. It's very complex and would kind of take us on too much of a tangent. Suffice to say that Mexico had been going through a series of wars and civil wars and revolutions and counter-revolutions for quite a long time before around 1930 when things stabilized into a system of one-party rule known as the Maximato era, Mm. whereby things were semi-stable. There was still uh, a lot of political infighting happening, but within this one party that controlled the government. So the first sound film made in Mexico was 1931's Santa, which starred Lupita Tavar, uh, who we will remember as having played Maria in the Spanish-language version of Dracula. Oh, yeah. Sound film was really significant to the growth and birth of the Mexican film industry because the Spanish language, particularly in the Mexican dialect or accent or however you want to put that, was something that could mark these films as quintessentially Mexican Mm -hmm. as opposed to anything else, right? Like, in the silent era... Why wouldn't you just, you know, put on a Hollywood movie and switch the title cards out to Spanish and there you go, right? Whereas now, there were specific reasons for a local, you know, sort of native Mexican film industry to grow and thrive. Mexican performers started to become very popular celebrities. Mexican filmmakers were encouraged to innovate in their field, uh, particularly after Sergei Eisenstein visited Mexico uh, in 1931 and shot his film Que Viva Mexico, an Eisensteinian take on revolutionary Mexico. 
Interesting. Yeah, so that proved very inspiring to Mexican filmmakers. Also, the rise of fascist governments in Argentina and Spain in the 1930s ended up making Mexico the world's largest producer of Spanish-language films, um, because those fascist governments, of course, would put a very tight stranglehold on cultural output. Yeah, that's um, what we've, we've kind of talked about in the case of Germany. Mm-hmm. Also, the Mexican uh, Maximado government encouraged the production of Mexican films based around authentic Mexican culture as a goal to try and counteract Hollywood's uh, stereotyped portrayal of Mexicans, which, due to the prevalence of Hollywood film, presented a certain image of Mexico to the world that uh, the Maximato government wanted to... Challenge. Yes, uh, with (laughs) homegrown Mexican films. Thus, there was a real push to produce movies based on traditional Mexican culture, hence doing a film based on La Llorona. That's really interesting because I forget when, but we've talked about how Germany in particular in like the late 20s, early 30s, wanted to kind of put their stamp on film by using this very drastic art style. Mm-hmm. And here we have Mexico not doing so much an aesthetic, but a, a topic focus. Yeah, a cultural focus um, as well as, as linguistic focus. Yeah, that's really cool. The film is called La Llorona, based on the Crying Woman legend. It was produced by Echo Films and directed by Ramon Peon. Uh, It was the first horror film produced in the country, hence why we haven't seen anything from Mexico before on the show. And as such, it was actually heavily influenced by the style of silent German horror cinema, because that was sort of seen as the template for what horror should look like. For sure. Um, That being said, the decision to make a horror film in Spanish in Mexico was actually more influenced by the popularity of Spanish-language Dracula with Lupita Tavar in that country. Okay. Um, that production did fairly well when it screened in Mexico, and that's sort of what led to this idea of, okay, well, but let's do a real Mexican horror film. Spanish Dracula is in Spanish, but it's not a Spanish story. Yeah, definitely not. That's part of why we, we had troubles with it when we were ranking it. And yeah. Stuff. The other thing is, I guess, Mexican audiences found Spanish Dracula fairly comical because the Hollywood cast of that film was Spanish speakers from many different countries. So, for example, the actor who played Dracula in that film was from Spain. Lupita Tavar was from Mexico. So uh, that sort of continued throughout the cast. So you had a lot of people speaking Spanish, but in very different accents or dialects that apparently sounded very comical to the Mexicans. Um, So to adapt the legend to film, the services of two screenwriters, Carlos Noriega Hope, who had been the screenwriter for Santa, the inaugural sound Mexican film, as well as Fernando de Fuentes Carrao, who would go on to be considered actually one of Mexico's greatest filmmakers. Wow. Uh, The two men would write the screenplay for La Llorona based on a story by Guzman Aguilera. The film's director, Ramon Peón, was born in Havana, Cuba in 1887, uh, with La Llorona being his first film made in Mexico, uh, as well as his first sound film. Hmm. 
As such, he was still used to the stylistic and performance norms of silent cinema and largely directed La Llorona in that method. Uh, the cast was composed either of theatrical actors who were unused to film or silent actors who were unused to sound. Though, Ramon Pereira, the film's male lead, and his wife, actress Adriana Lamar, uh, would go on to be quite popular actors uh, throughout the 30s after this film. They're both our leads? They're, uh, yes, they're both in the movie. There's a lot of women in this movie. Oh, cool. Um, we haven't really seen a movie that was dominated by women. Yeah, there's just a lot of women in the cast for this particular one. That's due to the fact that I guess this movie has, like, a single united plot, but almost an anthology style. Okay. With um, multiple variations and time periods throughout the, the storyline. So La Llorona would actually go on to be quite a big hit upon release, uh, establishing a precedent for a wave of popular Mexican horror cinema uh, to follow through the 1930s. Sort of similar to what we've seen in America and other places. This is coming a couple years, a year and a half after the United States, though. Yes, yeah. yeah. But uh, with the nature of film production in countries other than America, uh, sometimes you don't have that same ability to really pump out movie after movie <laughs> after movie. Like, For sure. in the 1940s, uh, you know, if 40 films were made in Mexico in a year, that was considered record-breaking. So it was definitely a, a much smaller level of production happening in Mexico at the time. Mm-hmm. Well, folks, you will be able to watch along with us. You can find the film on our Scream Scene YouTube playlist by going to screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com and following the links there. We will hear a brief musical interlude, and then we will be right back after watching La Llorona from 1933. And here's hoping that those auto-Google-translated subtitles work out for us. <laughs> we'll see you on the other side, everybody. We just finished watching La Yavona from 1933, Mexico's first horror film. Um, what did you think, Ben? Uh, well, it, it was a fun, weird little movie. Yeah, it's, it's sort of interesting because you can see the, the efforts to make a horror movie. You can see the efforts to incorporate a lot of Mexican culture. Mm -hmm. um, but... Personally, I blame the director for this. I don't know if the emphasis is in the right place in this movie okay. at certain points. And that's maybe something we can discuss a little later. But I found the movie mostly disappointing and in a lot of cases pretty subpar in terms of its quality. Now, granted, it's sort of the, the first horror movie being made by this film industry, an industry that's still getting used to sound. The sound technology in this film is a lot more primitive than some of the stuff we've been seeing coming out of, like, Hollywood, for instance. Yes, yeah. Um, so judging it maybe against Hollywood films isn't super fair, but 
that's what we're going to end up having to do eventually anyways. Yeah. Well, before we get there, uh, how about you tell us the plot synopsis? Yeah. So <laughs> La Llorona sort of has like a nested doll plot in that there's a couple of long flashback sequences to explain the story. But in the order things are presented to us in the movie, we begin with a man who dies after hearing sort of the wailing of a woman in the style of La Llorona. This dead man is then being examined by some doctors. There's some discussion over whether he was killed because he saw a ghost and it frightened him to death, or whether it was just sort of like a normal cardiac arrest. Mm -hmm. On the side of normal cardiac arrest is Dr. Ricardo de Acuna, who is played by Ramon Pereda, who is our star actor. He doesn't really think there's anything to this ghost thing. Um, that's all just superstition. Then we go to his home and the fourth birthday party of his son, Juanito. And the other members of his family are his wife, Anna Maria, and then her father, Don Fernando de Moncada. Now, uh, Don Fernando is worried because it turns out there's a curse on the Moncada family regarding the firstborn son around the age of four, which Juanito just turned. So Don Fernando takes Dr. Ricardo to the library and says, you know, my wife and my four-year-old firstborn son were killed around his fourth birthday, so I'm really worried about yours. We've already established that Dr. Ricardo doesn't believe in ghosts. He also doesn't really believe in curses. So to try and convince him of the validity of this worry, uh, Don Fernando says there's two books in the library that he's going to read to him to explain what the deal with this curse is. So he pulls out the first one, and we go into our first extended flashback sequence, where we flash back about... 300 years earlier to the 16 or 1700s, colonial Mexico under Spanish rule, New Spain, and it's a story about Fernando's ancestor, Don Rodrigo de Cortez, who is rescued from some bandits by Ricardo's ancestor, Captain Diego de Acuna. Uh, they become friends due to this rescue, but Cortez is kind of terrible. <laughs> uh, he's living with his mistress, who is also named Anna Maria, uh, same as the wife in the present-day sequence, so that's not confusing. But this Anna Maria is Nawa, or a more familiar term to some listeners might be Aztec but an indigenous woman. Uh, she is his mistress and also the mother of his child, who is four years old. But Cortez will not recognize the son as his own. He hasn't married his mistress, so they don't have any of the rights of his name under Spanish law. Captain Diego thinks this is kind of... A dick move. Yes, especially when he learns that Rodrigo, the reason he's not marrying Anna Maria is because he is going to marry a well-connected Spanish woman in sort of a politically, economically advantageous marriage, and then just sort of leave his mistress and his son in the lurch. So then we go to the wedding, uh, a scene which goes on a little too long. More than a little too long. It's like, yes, we get it. It's a wedding. <laughs> yep. There's a few scenes like that in this movie, like the birthday scene at the start is a little like, yep, we get it. 
But regardless, Cortez is getting married just as the ceremony is sort of wrapping up. Diego and Anna Maria and the kid burst in, and Diego's like, this guy's a two-timing scumbag. And uh, all the sort of leading citizens who are assembled as guests are, like, shocked, and uh, Cortez is humiliated. It does seem like Diego maybe could have shown up a little bit earlier for that, like, speak now or forever hold your peace (laughs) part of things, if anyone knows why this couple shouldn't be wed. Um, Which we see. Yeah, they do the whole thing. Yeah. Anyways, Cortez heads back to Anna Maria's home, uh, and he's pounding on the door trying to get inside, demanding that he be given his son, be given his paternal rights, and take the son away from Anna Maria. So rather than accept that, uh, she kills the son, and kills herself. That's when we first see the spectral form of La Llorona rise up from her body and make its wailing call and go flying off into the night as everyone's looking up in horror. Back in the present, Don Fernando tells Ricardo that actually the curse has origins even older than that, that are in the second book that he needs to read to him. But he can't find that book right now because a mysterious figure going around in, like, um, what would be familiar to a North American as a Klansman outfit, but black instead of white, uh, is going around and has stolen that book. What's significant is that our mystery-masked figure is wearing, like, a Mesoamerican design-style ring that is the same ring that... Anna Maria in the flashback was wearing. So that book's missing, so he'll just have to get back to Ricardo on that. Everyone kind of splits up. They put the kid to bed. Ricardo and his wife go to bed, and Don Fernando stays up reading in the library. He gets got. He gets got by mystery person. Thanks to that uh, most helpful of features of old dark houses, secret passages everywhere. Uh, His body is discovered by Ricardo and some of the other servants, and they call the police. While they're waiting for the police to arrive, our mystery figure bursts in on the wife's room and attacks her and steals the kid uh, and tries to kidnap the kid down through the secret passages. Uh, Ricardo runs after them and gets the kid back, but our mystery figure escapes. Like, disappears. Yeah. Runs through a wall and is gone. Yeah. The police arrive, and they start searching the secret passages, trying to find how this person got away. And what they discover is the second book. Uh, So everybody just sits down to read that book now, even though we were hot on the heels of, like, a murderer kidnapper seconds ago. But, yeah, (laughs) for sure. Sit down and read a book. So this is where we learn that the true origin of La Llorona is the La Malinche story that Sarah elucidated before we watched the movie. It turns out that the Rodrigo Cortez we saw in the last flashback, who is the ancestor of the Moncadas, is himself descended from, like, the Cortez, Hernan Cortez, the conquistador, and that the first La Llorona was uh, La Malinche, his indigenous translator mistress, who uh, he raped and then took the baby away from once it was born to be raised as a Spaniard. And this indigenous woman, in the movie at least, in the movie's version of the story, is shown to have kind of fallen into despair and madness, convinced that everyone's kid 
was her son, and she goes around, like, whimpering about, like, my son, my son, everywhere she goes, until finally she kills herself with the same knife that we've been seeing everyone else kill themselves with, and her ghost rises up from her body to go a wailing. Um, and it turns out that her people, the indigenous peoples, have been hounding the conquistador's descendants ever since, basically engineering this curse upon them with the help of the original knife that has been passed down and this ring that has been passed down. Somehow, Don Fernando and, you know, Dr. Ricardo and everyone who knows about this curse just hasn't noticed that all their household staff is made up of members of the Avenging Nawa tribe. Once they've read that second book, we're back to the present day. The mysterious prowler has grabbed the kid again. And uh, murdered a policeman. And murdered a policeman. Uh, and Who heads, was just hanging around. <laughs> Did and, nothing wrong. And heads through another secret passage uh, in the library, but is spotted by one of the other household servants who's kind of our comic relief character so everybody runs down after them and it looks like this masked figure is about to sacrifice or at least murder the child on like a kind of indigenous altar but is stopped when the police just straight up shoot them in the back so you know if you can shoot it it's probably not supernatural they pull the mask off and who could it have been but nanny goya the child's nanny and the, the household maid, who's just mostly kind of just shuffled around in the background trying to give people tea throughout the movie and generally being ignored. Because, yes, it's been the servants who have been perpetuating the curse all along. But then what's that? After she dies, another spectral form rises up from her. <laughs> the end. <laughs> I know we, we weren't sure whether the... Spirit of La Llorona was possessing people. Or if or it's a different ghost. Every time. Yeah, we, it's, it's, it's tough um, to tell, particularly because, like, between Google Auto Translate not being great yeah. and Sarah and I not speaking Spanish as a first language and the effects At of, all. Speaking Spanish at all. Yes, that's a good point. At all. We don't speak Spanish at all. And then also, like, the effects of the movie being fairly primitive, it was hard to tell if it was different La Llorona's rising from every dead woman, or if it, the idea was supposed to be, like, that the ghost possesses them and then, like, leaves the body when they're dead and goes on to the next person or whatever. It's also unclear that, like, if the ghost of La Llorona is tied to this one family with this one curse that goes down through the generations, what the deal with the guy at the start of the movie who dies from seeing the ghost is? Like, what does that have to do with anything? He's just walking home. Yeah, just in the wrong place at the wrong time, I guess. Yeah. So, uh, what did you think of this film? Like I said in the beginning, uh, kind of a weird, fun little movie. I'm kind of torn because I think the tie-in of this film with Malinche is kind of cool. Mm-hmm. But it does have problematic elements, mm. um, which is ironic because you preface this movie by saying how the Mexican film industry wanted to challenge the stereotypical depiction of Mexicans in like Hollywood films yeah. and kind of show like, hey, here's our culture. That's really cool. Uh, and they definitely achieve that in this movie. But with the inclusion of Malinche and the 
Nawa Aztec cultures as like untrustworthy or supernatural or whatever, there's like problems in that. It's interesting because it's hard to suss out like whose side the movie's on. Because in the flashbacks, it's pretty clear that, like, the Cortezes are awful and kind of deserve the retribution that's coming for them. Whereas in the present-day sequence, our sympathies are with the family and sort of against their indigenous servants, as if sort of the message is to say that, like, these people shouldn't have to, like, bear the... Burden. Yeah, bear the burden or the punishment for, like, the sins of their forebears, right? Yeah. Um, which is an interesting message to unpack, especially in the context of colonialism, which is, you know, what the movie's kind of about. Yeah. I mean, I, I would say that I was disappointed in this movie as well, because when I first heard the story and was researching the myth, I wanted this to be a bit more of a a vengeful, get-what's-coming-to-them style of horror, kind of like what we saw in Freaks, where you're on the side of the perpetrators of the violence, and you're totally right that with the modern-day family, like, there's no reason why we should hate these people. Yeah. And I, I kind of wanted this, like, woman taking revenge, kind of like what we got a taste of in Supernatural a couple movies ago. Instead, what we got was this Scooby-Doo old dark house type of deal. Yes. Which is fine. And I get that, like, you know, this movie can't really be pushing boundaries that are happening in other countries and stuff. But it it just meant that I I was kind of wanting more. Yeah, I totally agree with you. For a movie called La Llorona, it's not about the ghost. Yeah. Right? She's flavor. And it does, it is that Scooby-Doo setup to the point where, like, this is a a 70-minute movie and it feels like the flashbacks are here less because of a show-don't-tell philosophy, like, oh, if we're going to give you the backstory, we might as well show it. It feels like the flashbacks are more just here so that this isn't half an hour long, so that this isn't the length of a Scooby-Doo episode. Because all the flashbacks really tell you is, like, there's a curse on this family because... They were uh, terrible people. In the past, to women. And so now the, the ghost of these women haunts them. But, like, I, I would bet that the two flashbacks take up about half the running time. Especially that first one. Yeah, the the, the pacing in this movie is really off, in my opinion. Do you think that's an editor or a director? I blame the director, because I think he shot more of that stuff. Like, the director of this movie, Ramon Peon, seems to be more interested in every element of this story that isn't horror. (laughs) Like, it's, you know, like the birthday party at the start that goes on forever. The comic relief characters who get more close-ups than anyone else in the film. The long digressions in that first flashback, which has, like, three different fencing scenes that are just, like, have nothing to do with anything, really. And it's Um, just a static camera as you see these people fighting. Yeah, It's just kind of like, okay. The long wedding scene where it's, like, as if someone took them aside and said, like, oh, we're only giving you permission to shoot in this church if you shoot the whole wedding or something like that. Give the bishop some screen time. Yeah, there's just, like, so much in this movie you don't really need. And then the flip side of that is that, like, the second flashback... That's the one that's actually about La Malinche and Cortez 
is really, really short by comparison to the point where it's shot and edited as if it's just sort of a montage. Yeah. Like a very, and like the way they do that in montage is actually really cool. And from a cinematic perspective, I really enjoyed it, but it felt like the only reason we were doing it was because the first flashback was so long. Yeah. And didn't need to be. Definitely. That stuff being said, there were a couple points where I was like, oh, this is a neat way to transition things, where we'd have, I guess, like, they're called match cuts? Yes. Yeah, there were a lot of really well-done match cuts in this movie of going from, you know, uh, a pair of hands to a pair of hands kind of thing to do the transitions. I, I, I totally agree. Yeah, so that, that part was cool, but um, as far as, like, pushing cinematic techniques, that's maybe the only thing. And it's of, not really pushing, it's just using them very well. Yeah, a lot of good wipes in this movie. Yeah, that's true. It kind of felt like a Star Wars movie. The thing was that I don't think the director of this film is a bad filmmaker. I think he's a good filmmaker. It was a competently made film. I just don't think it was a well-made horror film. I think... The people making this movie knew how to make a movie. They didn't necessarily know how to make a horror movie. So there's horror elements in the plot, but less so in the actual filmmaking. When we go down into the secret passages and the basements, that's when we really see that shadow, but Mm -hmm. otherwise it's kind of lit as usual. Yeah, and like the, the scene where the masked figure like attacks the wife, is is pretty good and she's screaming and stuff and there's a lot of pov shots so like that's all right uh the opening kind of mysterious death with like the clenched hand the first time we see la yorona rise from a dead woman's body it's kind of spooky but like a little spooky too little spooky too yeah like overall i just think the movie's constructed in kind of a dull way it's telling an interesting story in a boring manner is kind of where i fall on the issue yeah, I I would agree. And yeah, I think I think it would have been so cool to have the story of this ghost, but it, it's not really that. No, it's the story of this guy learning that <laughs> his wife's side of the family is cursed and got to deal with that, I guess. Yeah. The way the movie kind of tries to have it both ways is interesting. It reminds me of what we were talking about last week with uh, the ghoul, where... Like, there is a ghost. Yeah. But then also there's a Scooby-Doo ending where we pull off the mask and it wasn't really a ghost. It was the servants the whole time. But they might have been possessed. Right. Like, there's there's kind of a... I don't know how I really feel about it, but there's kind of an interesting... Hedging? Am, hedging of bets ambiguity there. Yeah. Yeah. Which is interesting because, like, when you... Think ghost stories in Mexico. Speaking as someone who is Canadian and doesn't really know much about Mexican culture, you think Day of the Dead. Sure, sure, sure. Yeah, which I know is about commemorating the people who you've lost that year. So I I can see why maybe they would feel uncomfortable with the idea of ghosts coming back to haunt you. Yeah. Especially because of, like... Catholicism Yeah, Mexico's a a Catholic nation, for sure. Yeah. But then in all of the folktales, especially with La Llorona being, like, one of the most popular folktales, it's kind of this weird tension. Yeah, it it feels like a lot, in fact, like um, those 1920s American horror films where the spooky element is window dressing to a sort of standard kind of mystery thriller plot that's designed to just kind of distract you from what's actually going on. Yeah. And the the, the problem I really have with this movie is just that the modern-day plot 
there's nothing to it. There's nothing here. There's no meat on the bones, right? Which is why so much of the running time is just taken up with telling us these old folk tales, right? It just doesn't quite work for me. It's a, a movie that has a lot of interesting themes and ideas and concepts. A lot of interesting ingredients that just haven't been put together in a very interesting way. Yeah. Do you want to move on to ranking? For sure. Where were you kind of thinking? So I'm a little low on the list. Sure. Um, I could see this going as high as above the monster, but below the golem. And then on the, the low end, I wanted to maybe give the option that maybe this was worse than wolf blood, but probably not. So that's kind of where I'm looking. Sure. So when I was going to start ranking, I wanted to kind of give this movie a bit of leeway because it's the first horror movie out of a country that doesn't have the kind of like pump it out industry that Hollywood has. Mm -hmm. So I, I was giving it a little bit of leeway. So I'm a little bit higher than you. Okay. But not by much. I started with looking at Spanish Dracula, ranked at 31. Sure, that seems like a reasonable place to start. Yeah, and as much as I was not a fan of that film, I, I was torn because, like, I, I feel like that's a better made movie because it's using, like, the same sets. It's, like, made in a different country just with Spanish-speaking people, whereas this is, like, homegrown. Yeah, for sure. Like... The director of Spanish Dracula is an American director. Exactly. But that is kind of my ceiling. Kind of the lowest I was willing to go was um, above the golem and below number 37, which is the Avenging Conscience, or Thou Shalt Not Kill. That's interesting, because that was sort of... The highest I was willing to go was below the golem. Yeah. So... Maybe the first thing we need to talk about then is this movie versus the golem. Why Why did you think this was definitely better? Just because this at least was horror in a way that the golem wasn't? Yeah, the golem's on the list partly because the film The Golem is a prequel to an actual horror movie that is lost, so we kind of gave it some leeway. But it is kind of the one of the first monster movies yeah, it's that we like, came across. Yeah, it, it, it is a, a, a taste to come in terms of like stuff like Frankenstein. Yeah, for sure. This movie is hedging its bets a little bit, but it's actually trying to do horror. That's true. Yeah. When we're down at, like, the extreme ends of the list, that's when I feel like that push and pull between what the qualities of the film are as a film versus what its qualities as an entry in the horror genre, you know, really start to push-pull. Because um, my feeling was, you know, that the golem was... Definitely a better made movie than this. Um, you know, coming 13 years earlier, you know, it has better production values, sets, really is like a, a pretty amazing production um, in a way that this movie, I think, maybe wants to with its, like, period settings and costumes and things, but doesn't quite get at. Mm -hmm. um, but you're right in that this movie is more horror than The Golem is. The Golem's never really trying to scare you, whereas this movie has a bit of a haunted house sensibility. Every once in a while it is going to pop out and say boo. Yeah, and the reason why I was thinking, like, below The Avenging Conscience, which also hedges its bets by saying, like, it was all a dream or whatever, is um, we were very taken by how The Avenging Conscience, like, showed some gross stuff on screen, like ants and a hornet or mm -hmm. something. 
and then someone like committing suicide by jumping off a cliff and then someone hanging themselves. This movie, La Yervona, we see like people get stabbed. Mm-hmm. We get the shadow of the hand with the knife coming down, which is like knowing that they were influenced by German expressionism is like straight from Caligari. Mm-hmm. So like because it was showing violence but also kind of like using shadow to show its violence, I was like, okay, I'll put Avenging Conscience above because it was like, no, here's the violence. Well, an Avenging Conscience also has that one standout sequence when they're actually adapting Telltale Heart of basically conveying sound in a silent film. Yeah. Uh, where it's the pressure and the anxiety of, of this guy hearing the the tapping and everything, and you don't... But there is no sound in the movie, right? But it conveys it through the editing and the shots and stuff. Like, Avenging Conscience, like The Golem, I think is a better-made movie in terms of the, the filmmaking technique that's going on. Yeah. So then, we're, we're in agreement that Avenging Conscience is better. We're still kind of debating The Golem, because, yes, The Golem's a better movie, but La Llorona is actually trying to do horror. Comparing the special effects in both those movies... The golem takes it. Oh yeah, by a mile. yeah, yeah, absolutely. But then the monster at thirty nine below the golem. Yeah, I mean the the monster is just like a goofy comedy in a way that this movie is like isn't. Um, I mean, I still think the monster is probably better made than this film, or at least is like more coherent or like more of a piece. This movie creaks a bit in this like has a lot that, that makes me think of Night of Terror and Monster Walks because the part of the parts of this movie that aren't history flashbacks are mysterious figures coming through secret passages and sneaking up on people, right? Doesn't have the racism that Night of Terror and Monster Walks have. Does it? Because like if this is a a Mexican film where our heroes are uh colonialist Mexicans, or descended from colonialist Mexicans, Spanish-descended Mexicans, and the villains are indigenous-descended Mexicans, and it's like, ooh, they're gonna sacrifice them on the altar and stuff. Like, it's not a racism that we're familiar with, so it's hard for us to judge, is it racist? But I would say that the possibility is still there. What I meant is that there's no minstrel character. Sure. Yeah, okay. Like, <laughs> so there, there's that. It's not as, I guess, explicit. But you you are right. They are dealing with some very heavy themes. But um, maybe not dealing with... It's just there. Yeah. That's the thing that's frustrating is that there's these heavy themes about colonialism and, uh, you know, and, and the question of, like, are the descendants of conquerors responsible for the actions of their forebears, right? Like as the descendants of colonialist genocidal oppressors, do we bear responsibility or should we be kind of forgiven because it wasn't us who did it, even if we're still benefiting socially by the outcomes of those actions, right? Like Dr. Ricardo has a mansion and is a like fairly wealthy man and yeah. he serve you know, and he has all these servants who aren't and there's a racial and class division between the two that lines up and is clearly descended from, you know, certain historical events in the past. Explicitly. Right. And so there's these things that this film touches upon, and I think what frustrated us the most about it was that it's a movie that 
it, it rather than using horror as a genre to address these taboo topics, it's as if it just uses these topics as flavor for a relatively tame, standard, Scooby-Doo, old, dark house movie. That's yeah. the ultimate thing that's frustrating here. I would 100% agree. You've hit the nail on the head there. Can we put it below the golem above the monster? I would be fine with that. I think I would be fine with that, too. Coming in at number 39 on the list, La Llorona from 1933, directed by Ramon Peon. If you would like to see this list, you can visit our website at screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. There you can find links to the other episodes, as well as a submission box where you can submit appeals, concerns, questions, suggestions for the show. Feel free to also contact us over email at screamscenepodcast at gmail.com and on Twitter at underscore screamscene. Scream Scene updates every Wednesday on SoundCloud and iTunes and can also be found through our RSS feed on whatever podcasting app you happen to use. If you'd like to help the show out, one way you can do that is by reviewing the show on iTunes, which helps other people see the show when they're looking for it on that platform. Uh, We'd also appreciate it if you wanted to leave us a comment on SoundCloud. It's nice to get feedback. And the other way you can really help us out is just by telling your friends about us. If you know anyone who's into a classic horror show that also dives into cultural history sometimes, let them know. Where else will you hear a podcast that talks about horror and colonialism? Right. Exactly. So, what are we watching next week, Ben? Next week we are watching The Invisible Man from 1933, directed by James Whale and starring Claude Rains. Back to our regularly scheduled programming. Yes, exactly. (laughs) Well, we will see you then, Creatures of the Night. Will we see them if they're invisible? They're not invisible, Claude Rains is. Oh, I'm sorry, I got confused for a moment. Yeah, he's the only one who's invisible, that's like the whole thing. How does he see anyone if light's passing through his eyes? Listen, we are a film podcast, not a science podcast. Alright. Bye! Bye!